1: Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 16th of August in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Stephen Carroll.
2: And I'm Tom McKenzie. Coming up today, UK
1: inflation comes in above expectations for the fifth time in six months. Dozens of payments are missed by one of China's shadow banking giants as cracks in the economy deepen.
2: And we bring you a special report into Muslims who say their lives have been ruined by the UK's debanking policy. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. UK inflation higher than expected. UK inflation has traders once again betting the Bank of England will hike rates to 6%. Year on year, CPI rose by 6.8% in July. That's a sizable drop on the month before, but up on expectations for the fifth time in six months. Core inflation also came in hotter than forecast, holding steady at 6.9%. Treasury Secretary John Glenn says the government is to thank for slowing price rises. This is lowest since February last year. That doesn't happen by magic, it happens by deliberate action
3: by government ministers holding on to government budgets, working very closely to take out inefficiencies and waste and ensure that we keep that pressure down on
2: inflation. The Treasury Secretary added the government are on course to hit their target of halving inflation by the end of the year. However, markets are currently pricing in another 75 basis points of hikes from the Bank of England.
1: The latest Federal Reserve minutes are expected to show an increasingly dovish outlook from policymakers. According to Bloomberg Economics, a record of July's FOMC meeting will show the majority of officials were encouraged by progress on disinflation, but not yet convinced the rate hike cycle is over. That chimes with the view of Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari, who says the battle against inflation is not yet over.
4: Right now, inflation is coming down. We've made some progress, some good progress. I feel good about that. It's still too high. The good news is the labour market has remained very strong. But it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, because the question in my mind is, have we done enough to actually get inflation all the way back down to our 2% mark, or do we have to do more?
1: Neil Kashkari votes on monetary policy this year. He and other key central bankers will gather in Jackson Hole, Wyoming later this month for the annual economic policy symposium to debate the global path ahead for interest rates. Now Chinese shadow bank Zhongrong has now missed
2: payments on dozens of products and says it has no immediate plan to cover them. That's as it faces a short-term liquidity crunch. The firm is a major player in China's $2.9 trillion trust industry, which pulls savings to invest in real estate and wider markets. Bloomberg's John Leo warns investors should not see this as an isolated case.
4: This is an issue that we've seen in the trust industry. There have been tens of billions of dollars of uh, products that have defaulted already. It's likely that there will be more because there was so much lending by trusts in China to property and with the real estate situation as it is, there is a great chance that there will be more of this in the future.
2: Bloomberg's John Liu underscoring the troubles in China's property sector as house prices fell for a second straight month in July. This as the Chinese central bank moved to boost sentiment with a stronger than expected yuan reference rate and the
1: largest short-term cash injection since February. Intel says it's walking away from its attempt to acquire Tower Semiconductor after failing to win regulatory approval in time. The chip firm say they've mutually agreed to terminate the $5.4 billion takeover with Intel paying Tower a termination fee of $353 million. The news is a major blow for Intel's CEO Pat Gelsinger, whose growth strategy is centred on expanding the firm's outsourced chip manufacturing business.
2: The debate over debanking in the UK has put fresh focus on those who have difficulty accessing financial services. Figures from the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, show one in ten British Muslims don't have a bank account. Bloomberg has spoken to a number of customers who struggled with the system. Former postman Ikhil Ahmed says the issue has only gotten any attention because of the controversy over Nigel Farage's account being closed. All men are created equal, some more equal than others. It's because it's Nigel Farage that this has all come to light. Otherwise, they were fine with it happening to so many other people. And then like now, the fact that the heads of banks are having to resign and stuff. Nigel Farage weighed against every other person it's happened to. And Nigel Farage weighed heavier than all of us put together. How does that make any sense? Where is where's the justice for us? Ahmed's Halifax card was cancelled after three decades with the lender. A spokesperson for Halifax's owner Lloyd says they meet all regulatory and legal requirements and do not close an account based
1: on a customer's political or personal beliefs. The philanthropic organisation that controls most of the assets in George Soros's $25 billion family office is set to end the majority of its operations in the European Union. Open Society Foundation says it's making the move because the EU's institutions are already allocating significant resources to human rights, freedom and pluralism. George Soros handed control of the foundation to his son Alexander in December. In a statement, the organisation says it's now undertaking a global review of how it works to support democracy and other philanthropic causes.
2: Now, Bloomberg has learned that a US litigation funder is backrolling massive legal action against UK universities for closures during the COVID-19 pandemic. Bloomberg's Ewan Potts reports.
3: TRGP Capital is spending an undisclosed amount in roughly 140,000 claims against 18 UK universities. This according to a lawyer involved in the cases. University College London, the University of Manchester and the London School of Economics are among the universities accused of charging full tuition fees for lower quality remote education during the pandemic. Shimon Goldwater is a partner at Asserton Law Office, which is one of the two firms handling the cases. Undergraduate claims are valued at an average of £5,000 each, adding up to potentially hundreds of millions of pounds in payouts. The first claims are being filed against UCL in the High Court in London. UCL says it respects the right of students to complain, but is pleased the court has allowed more time to resolve the claims without further litigation. In London, I'm Ewan Potts, Bloomberg Daybreak Europe.
1: Well, let's get some more detail now on that latest UK inflation print. We've got Bloomberg's senior UK economist, Dan Hansen, joining us to discuss, um, as well as Marcus Ashworth from Bloomberg Opinion as well, as we're looking at that print that came in hotter than expected in terms of the headline number. The core CPI number, though, remaining steady between June and July. Um, Dan Hansen, let's go to you first. I mean, how much of a concern is it that this core number didn't move over that month?
3: So, morning, Stephen. Um, so, I think it is it is what the Bank of England will focus on, essentially. Um, and I think, in particular, it will be the rise in services inflation that happened on the month. It came in a little bit hotter than the bank's forecast. So, I think it will be a worry to them. But I, I, I actually don't think it will be as much of a worry as what happened yesterday um, with the wages data. So, I think that will be their biggest concern going into the September meeting. I mean, one thing to remember here is, We do have another set of wage and inflation data coming before the September meeting, so, you know, it being the UK data, uh, the narrative will probably shift again, but nonetheless, as things stand now, I think it's pretty likely they're going to hike again in September, and it's going to be based around that wages data. I think the data today doesn't really move the needle much in their thinking.
1: Let's go to Marcus Ashworth from Bloomberg Opinion, Marcus. I, I wonder how you feel about the market reaction to this latest set of data as well. The market's getting it right, and where in terms of where the Bank of England goes from here?
5: Yeah, I suppose that at least the the predictability of what the Bank of England has signaled to us is much better than it has been uh, in previous months. So, yeah, I think the market is being driven higher anyway by U.S. rates and also interestingly by European rates at the moment, but um i think as dan has quite clearly laid out uh we are in, in a more confident um mode in the bank of england but the numbers still aren't giving them any means to do anything other than keep on hiking the key here really is whether or not they hike by 50 which i don't think they will and i think they've made words like restrictive and and, and a few other little phrases which mean that they are going to have to increase by 25 basis points as they go along we do have another month of, of both the uh, payroll, employment and um, inflation data to, to see. But it's highly likely we will get 25 on September the 21st and then probably another one, maybe two. I think I agree again with Dan, I don't think they will go to six. But for the moment, they're buying as much time as possible. But the, the fl- inflation data is fine. But the labor and particularly wage data is just too strong for them to stop hiking.
2: Marcus, there's the, there's the what you expect and what you think they should they should do, of course. And there, there, so what, what do you think they sh- should do? I mean, there is no evidence yet of a, of a wage uh, price spiral in the UK, according to most economists, what you speak to, including our own team. So why not just sit pat and hold on and see how this filters through the economy, particularly as people remortgage?
5: Uh, I definitely would th- would think that would be the, the wiser long-term action. But for whatever reason, they've painted themselves in a corner here, whereby they made very clear, and they've shifted the goalposts at, at the uh, August meeting, making it very evident that they're really not looking at headline inflation so much as service sector inflation, which is back up to a peak we saw in May at 7.4. And most importantly of all, they made clear private sector uh, wage growth should be down around six, six point two, something like that, by the end of the year. You know, that's that shot up. Um, and it got even further away. So I, I don't think how they set their sort of whole credibility stall out, um, they are going to do anything other than keep on hiking steadily and slowly. And if they see very good reason why they can pause, um, and I think they'll be led by both the Fed and perhaps the European Central Bank here, um, if quite clear the Fed and the ECB are, are on pause, maybe the bank of England will be brave, but they'll be the last to be brave here. They realize they've got a worse problem with uh, stickier core and service inflation and particularly uh, wage growth than than other economies. And that they are forced to act under their own very clearly now laid out uh, guidelines.
1: Dan Hanson from Bloomberg Economics, I mean, part of the move in the headline rate this time around was to do with base effects and energy. Are there more of these base effects to come that will kind of give us an idea as to where the the path looks from here? And and what does that tell us in terms of the path for core inflation uh, when we look from here on out?
3: yeah so i think the next the next real staging post for uk inflation is october so we're going to get we'll get a there'll be a the rise in prices in october last year will fall out of the annual comparison and at the end of this month hopefully off gem will give us or by the end of this month i should say hopefully off gem will give us some good news that energy bills will fall quite slightly not not a huge amount but slightly um again and that will move into the the cpi numbers in october so at that point we think inflation headline CPI inflation will fall down to around 5% um, And that will be obviously good news for the Prime Minister um, because we think he'll he'll just about achieve his goal of harming inflation um, The key point here though is around around core inflation and actually it, It's quite hard to see core inflation slowing m- much below levels we're already at. So we think by the end of the year, we're going to be a touch above 6%. We're not going to fall below 6% until early 2024. <laughs> and I think the context here, again, it goes back to the data yesterday, which is really the big one of the, the two releases we've had this week. It's that it's very hard for core inflation to slow much if wage inflation is still going up. It's just, it just it, it, it's very difficult for that to happen. So I think what we're going to see is this this really sticky uh, picture and, and Marx has set that out really clearly um, and the question and that I think for the Bank of England it's not really just about its terminal rate which we can argue the toss about I think it's actually about how long they stay at that terminal rate and mm. the fact that for 2024 the, the prospect of cuts are becoming sort of less and less likely if you like because this yeah. this picture around the labour market is just still very very tight and they need to just weigh on it more with with its with the policy stance. So, I think that that's our that's our baseline outlook for now. Um, and obviously, okay. we,
2: we'll continue to adjust as we go. Thanks, Dan. Really bad news for anyone looking to remortgage out there. Um, let's, Marcus, let's bring you back in briefly and step back from the UK data uh, and the granularity to, to look more broadly what's happening in terms of the disinflation or the change in terms of different disinflation globally. We see we see Canada, the surprise pickup there um, o- overnight. We've got energy prices, you've got you know, Brent and WTI, you've got gas price volatility. Uh, do you think Marcus, markets may be overly complacent about? the potential re-emergence of inflation more broadly?
5: Well, certainly they are more complacent than the uh, central bank uh, general group think is. And we'll find out a lot more about how central banks are, are approaching this, moving the goalposts. I mean, as Dan's laid out, I think the Bank of England has followed the ECB, which has followed the Fed. And we'll find out uh, Jackson Hole later this month quite what how the Fed intends to continue this whole plateau uh, model, which is get rates up to five, five and a half, doesn't really matter, six, probably not, but somewhere in the fives, and then keep it there for as long as possible to try and stop this horrid, sickening second lurch up, which everyone knows is going to come at some point. When you get inflation down, you can get the the, the headline stuff down quite quickly because it's energy and food, it's fast-moving stuff. And then you hit the the, the sort of second round effects, uh, stickier stuff comes through, and we've seen that in the labor data as well. And that's what they're most worried about, the, the central bankers, and therefore they want to keep rates now very high for as long as possible and, and price out any expectations of rate cuts. And I think that's what the dynamic is now. I'm very impressed how the Fed's managed to convince the U.S. bond market that it's, that's the case. Uh, and clearly we're seeing the ECB move there. And now in the August monetary report, we saw the Bank of England moving. The Bank of England will be the last to pause and the last to cut. But, you know, everyone's following the Fed and we will still set their stall out in the, the month on the on the big way that they'll convince uh, markets that they are going to stick at this. Because the second any any good news or disinflation comes through, as you well know, markets instantly look to price uh, uh, the end of the rate hike cycle.
1: Marcus, just to go back to something you said a minute ago about the Bank of England, be, you wanted to see the Bank of England being brave about this. What does a brave Bank huh. of England look like now?
5: Ah, uh, <laughs> Well, if they were brave, they would be able to look through this data, I feel, and, and, and know that, that the downturn in the economy and the slowing in the economy will do a lot of this work for them. It's really a question, think Dan mentioned this earlier, you know, if they already expect to be back into their target by, in their, say, three-year time frame, it's a question of do they need to get it back in within 18 months, two years, or do they or can they can they chill a bit and, and let it go even beyond the sort of into the two to three-year period? At the moment, they're not prepared to do that. But if they see further evidence in the real economy of of things really slowing down, loosening the uh, labor market, uh, and some signs that uh, uh, a lot of this stuff that's coming through, the monetary policy time lag, which we know is at least a year, probably close to two years, that they're, you know, 14 consecutive rate hikes uh, of over 500 basis points are starting to feed through. And will continue to feed through. Maybe they can they can take a bit more of of a, of, a, of a pause on life. Well, they only do that if they feel confident they can keep rates at this level for uh, at least a year from here. And I think that's what they're more they showed in August. They're moving that they're prepping things, and prepping the market to expect not so much about more more rate hikes. One or two doesn't really matter. It's how the, the fact they'll stay here for a long time. And that that is now the new uh, the new mantra from the central banks.
1: Okay, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. Thanks so much for joining us. And to Dan Hansen, our senior UK economist from Bloomberg Economics, as well.
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
4: Success is more than the final destination, it's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Well, after Nigel Farage said that his coot's bank account was closed because of his political beliefs, the issue of debanking has been thrust into public attention. But it's an issue that British Muslims have had to contend with for some time. Bloomberg's fintech reporter Aisha Ghané has been looking into this and speaking to people who've been affected by it. Aisha, good morning to you. Great to have you with us. What happens then to people who are Debanks that you've been speaking to?
6: Well, the people who've been debanked, they typically have found that their accounts have been frozen for a few days or for a few weeks. Um, I caught up with one man, Akil Ahmed from Luton. He's a former postman. And he said his bank account, his current account, was frozen for six weeks. And his wife's joint account was also frozen. And in that time, it meant that he didn't have access to his money. He couldn't get his grocery shopping, his debit, direct debit started bouncing. Let's take a listen of what he had to say.
2: All men are created equal, some more equal than others. It's because it's Nigel Farage that this has all come to light. Otherwise, they were fine with it happening to so many other people. And then like now, the fact that, that heads of banks are having to resign and stuff. Nigel Farage weighed against every other person it's happened to and nicer for ours, weight heavier than all of us put together. How does that make any sense?
1: Where is the justice for us? Dr. Keel Ahmed speaking to you, Aisha. How wide scale is this issue?
6: Right, so we know that a thousand people a day last year had their bank account shut down, and that's been increasing year on year. But we don't know exactly who is being hit by this. Uh, we know within like, the Muslim community, for example, one in ten don't have any kind of current account. So it is evidently impacting some people more than others.
2: Why, Aisha? Why is it's remarkable that statistic one in ten? Is, is are there cultural reasons for that, or is this the industry and failures at the industry level? Why is it hitting the Muslim community so acutely?
6: It's hard to know because there isn't enough data, but we know that it is based on socio-economic reasons. If we look at the sort of the demographics we're talking about people typically from immigrant backgrounds it depends on what part of the country you're from. You're more likely to be unemployed for example or for example you know have difficulty getting a job as well. So there's, it's like compounded by multiple things and it is just there's just such a lack of reporting. Lack of office. income shouldn't mm. be
2: uh, an impediment to opening a current account. I mean, I opened a current account when I was sixteen. I had no real income. Is it, have things changed at the industry level? Why? Why is a lack of income or low income preventing preventing people from opening just very basic current accounts?
6: Indeed. Well, if you look at the uh, the Financial Conduct Authority uh, released data from their survey last year and in that chart you can see that um, one in 50 Brits don't have bank accounts and that increases with people who are for example unemployed or people who have learning disabilities Mm. or or just multiple things like that and it just increases and I think there needs to be a lot more attention to these people who are underserved and to give credit there are some more digital banks that are addressing these issues however we can still see that those statistics are still staggering.
1: You talk in the story about the screening that banks are relying on when it comes to approving opening accounts uh, for customers. These are based on third-party watch lists. How does that play a part in whether someone is flagged as a risk or not?
6: Right. So typically if you or I opened a bank account today, we'd have to fill in our details and it would go through like the standard know your customer checks. Now, banks uh, have an obligation to check uh, against anti for anti-money laundering mm-hmm. and also for uh, counter-terror financing. And so there might be additional checks. And yes, these are based on third party databases, which. Which will include government sanction lists and other watch lists and so let's take a customer his name is Mohammed what will happen is that you will screen against his name and check for matches uh, if, if it turns up in any sanctions list and you can set the fuzziness so you can you can decide how you want the matches and for example you can include every single Spelling of Muhammad, if you like, and that's up to the banks to decide just how a much sort of the risk appetite that they take and and the resources that they'll put into checking these customers.
2: Aisha. Um, is this i mean okay how the banks responded is racism at play here is that is that is that what it comes down to as well as a lack of income is this about racism and how the banks responded
6: that's a really good question every single person i spoke to for lack of better for lack of a better answer that was their conclusion that they came up with they thought hey my name is mohammed khan you know I mean, why else have I been, uh, why else has my bank account been shut down? I haven't been given a reason. I've asked for reasons and no one's telling me. And so for many years, that's kind of the conclusion that a lot of people have uh, come up with. So uh, during the last earnings uh, season, when we asked uh, bank chiefs about this, many of them said that we don't take personal or political beliefs into account. And that is what is. that that is the statement that is given Um, but I think a lot of people, you know, having spoken to a lot of people, people who have been impacted, this is lawyers, we're talking about this former postman, we're talking about people who are within the financial services industry, they believe that more needs to be done to look at sort of the underlying bias that's built into the systems and to take a better look at, even if it's not intended, who is being impacted at the end of Mm. this.